Um, welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition podcast, um, 16th of July, 2020. I am Zani, uh, speaking from United Kingdom, and I have a, a distinct honor and uh, privilege uh, to speak to um, special reporter on human rights situation in North Korea, Thomas O'Hara Quintana. Um, Thomas was uh, in that capacity um, investigating human rights situation in my own country of Myanmar from 2008 to 2014. And that was when I got connected with Thomas um, you know, uh, towards the end of his tenure as the special rapporteur on Myanmar. And uh, he first spoke at the London School of Economics that um, some of us um, Rohingyas and Burmese activists organized in April of 2014. And Tomas was also, to his credit, um, the earliest UN official or, U or UN special rapporteur, I, I might, um, I have to say, that sounded uh, an alarm that the atrocities against the Rohingya Muslim minorities in the Western Myanmar bore the hallmarks of a genocide and that was uh, his words uh, back in 2014 at the time when the use of the word genocide um, was highly frowned upon or outrightly dismissed as exaggeration and uh, uh, Tomas has been a, a practicing human rights lawyer uh, <clears throat> for the last 20 years and has defended um, you know, uh, the, uh, many cases, particularly defending uh, um, human rights defenders, um, NGOs, and uh, he has been practicing public interest law. And he served as a consultant for the Argentinian parliament, worked as an advisor to government agencies on human rights and security issues. issues. He also worked as a, a clerk at a court in Argentina, and also he uh, worked as consultant for the Office of Human Rights Commission, High Commissioner for Human Rights in Bolivia. So um, he's got a long and distinguished career in the field of human rights, uh, investigating uh, rights abuses around the world. And without further ado, um, let me just invite our distinguished um, guest to explain what universal jurisdiction means for the lay audiences, uh, most of us who do not have the legal training, and also uh, the case uh, in which he is involved. Uh, that, that's a case that the Burmese Rohingya organization based in UK um, and um, you know, Argentinian um, solidarity groups co-filed uh, at the court, at one of the courts in Argentina against Aung San Suu Kyi and other crime criminals against humanity with respect to Rohingya persecution. Tomas, the um, floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, my friend Sarni, for this uh, call to let the international community, the people from the world, know about uh, what is happening with respect to how to hold accountable those who committed different kind of international crimes in the province of Rakhine in Myanmar. Uh, I am honored to share this conversation with you. Um, you have been um, encouraging and sharing your um, uh, analysis of the situation for many years, has been very helpful for many people, including myself, so I appreciate this opportunity. As you mentioned, I have held the, what is called the Myanmar mandate for the United Nations. And the job was to report to the United Nations regularly, twice a year, about the situation of human rights in Myanmar all over. Uh, I'm talking about Rakhine State, Kayin State, Karen State, Mon Chin, 
uh, and on and the uh, and the of course uh, Yangon and other areas. I hold that um, that the, that mandate for six years, from 2008 to 2014, and I visited the country nine times, travel all over, going to prisons to talk to political prisoners, to talk to journalists, to talk to um, uh, civil society organizations, to people on the countryside, and also to government authorities. Back in 2008, you all remember, it was a military regime uh, in Myanmar, uh, led by the SPDC, you know, uh, that was the, at the moment the, the, the organ um, the name of the organ that was running the country. So this is for you to know background of why just last year in November, here in Argentina, together with the Brook Burmese Rohingya Organization UK, we decided to file a complaint, a criminal complaint under the principle of universal jurisdiction. Uh, I represent, legally represent Brooke, uh, who is which is an organization which has been uh, fighting for the rights of the Rohingya for many years, led by our friend Mang um, Tung King. Uh, he visited Argentina, Buenos Aires, and he presented himself to the court, bringing this case uh, under the principle of universal jurisdiction. So what, what exactly means the universal jurisdiction? Well, first, let me, well, jurisdiction means that every person who believes that their rights have been abused or violated can go to a court, basically, and claim justice. And usually, uh, jurisdiction is mandated by the territory in where the crime has been committed. So if a crime has been committed in any country, for let's say in, in the UK, uh, then you go to the UK courts. Um, so this is the reasoning, this is the, the, this is the practice of jurisdiction all over the world. Now, when we talk about serious international crimes, including genocide and crimes against humanity, which a different kind of crimes, genocide, and we will then explain which is genocide, it is different from other crimes against humanity. But in either case, uh, the, uh, the international community, the uh, human rights movement um, from the world has pushed for the countries to broaden this conception of jurisdiction meaning that if there is a crime if there is a crime like genocide or crimes against humanity committed in a country and the condition is that in that country there is no possibility to uh, to 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 reach out for justice and accountability and to end impunity with the procedures that are independent impartial uh, and guarantee fair trial, if that does not, does not exist in that given country, then it is a responsibility of the whole world to exercise universal jurisdiction in any part of the world. Because, because basically, when someone commits a genocide or a crime against humanity, what is being affected in addition to the population itself is the humanity as a whole. Therefore, that gives rights to exercise uh, uh, universal jurisdiction, meaning that any court in any country all over the world has the right, has the right to file a complaint and to start an investigation and to summon the, the perpetrators and at the end to convict perpetrators. So this is what we did. We have did. We have done in in Argentina in November two thousand nineteen. Yeah. Um, that. Thank you so much for explaining. Um, let, let, let me see if I um, understand you correctly. Um, you mentioned as examples of crimes that warrant or merit the, uh, you know, the the application of 
the universal jurisdiction. Uh, as genocide and crimes against humanity. But as you know, these crimes are not crimes of passion. The often, in, in just about every case, the, um, you know, genocides and crimes against humanity are committed by state actors, i.e. governments and uh, national armed forces and security sector. And so in the case of Burma, as you, you know, uh, you spent uh, six years uh, talking to regime officials, as well as uh, senior politicians, including Aung San Suu Kyi, and also the younger generation, you know, Burmese dissidents uh, who came of age in the 1988 uprisings. Um, the, the, it is well documented that you know, Myanmar does not have an independent judiciary. And in the case of perse persecution against Rohingya community as a group, it is the state itself that is principal perpetrator. So therefore, the, you felt obviously that um, uh, th there cannot be justice for Rohingyas within the country where the crime or crimes have been commissioned or uh you know uh you know the perpetrated uh, the, correct me if i'm wrong um that can you compare this to you know the the case against the late general pinochet from chile and who was actually detained in this country, United Kingdom, on the principle of universal jurisdiction, activated by a Spanish judge, if I remember correctly, in Madrid. Are there similarities between the case that you and Baruch, uh, the Burmese Rohingya organization UK, and the Argentinian sister organization filed? Um, and the uh, you know the previous case against the late Pinochet. Of course, the legal basis of these two cases are exactly the same. Uh, it's the exercise exercise of universal jurisdiction for crimes against humanity. Pinochet has been the general who led the. Um, the 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 military regime in Chile. Chile is a South American country who has experienced um, under his authority crimes against humanity uh, for many many years. Uh, and then Chile got through a democratic transition and Pinochet. This is another similarity to to Myanmar. Very interestingly, uh, Pinochet. Um, managed to establish a constitution in Chile where I remember it was six or seven senators were part of the military, military system, were not elected, but even though they were members of the parliament. This, of course, is the similarities to the constitution of Myanmar where this is different though, 25% of the seats of the parliament belong de facto to the military in Myanmar. So this, this was the same with Pinochet. Years passed and Pinochet was traveling to London. And in Spain, there was a case under universal jurisdiction um, uh, under the uh, uh, authority of uh, the judge Baltasar Garzón, uh, he investigated the crimes of, uh, against Chileans in Spain because precisely like in Myanmar, in Chile, this were, there, was no, there, there was no independent judiciary or any venue or jurisdiction to seriously investigate the crimes. So in Spain, he started to investigate it, the crimes, he collected all the evidence, and he issued a warrant arrest on that case, and when Pinochet was in London, therefore, according to international law, 
the UK had to arrest it, had to arrest it, had to arrest it, uh, Pinochet. And that's what happened. So these are the similarities. We are in the early stages of our case here in Argentina, but we aim to this kind of results, like in the Pinochet case. And by the way, in Argentina, there are other examples of universal jurisdiction cases. For example, a court in Argentina has been investigating for many years the crimes committed in this case in Spain during the Franco era. And actually, an Argentinian court issued warrants arrest against some uh, members of the military in Spain. So there is a practice going on uh, on universal jurisdiction. Um, I just want to um, mention, uh, as it becomes relevant, uh, uh, in I, I believe in March 2018, in the midst of um, the exodus of you know 704. 40,000 Rohingyas from Myanmar into uh, Bangladesh. Uh, the Rohingyas activist and, um, you know, uh, Australian lawyer working on um, refugees and asylum issues, uh, particularly um, by the name of um, the man, this Australian by the name of Daniel Taylor, uh, filed the case against Aung San Suu Kyi using the um, Commonwealth, British Commonwealth law that governs or that is applicable in uh, in uh, in Australia or in, in Australian courts, uh, but you know the uh, the Attorney General of Australia uh, dismissed the case and um, the, the uh, Daniel and uh, his you know uh, the uh, uh, other colleagues appealed and they lost uh, in the appeal stage uh, on technical grounds. Yeah, and so this was the uh, March 2018, and that was a first attempt, but that did not uh, bear fruition. It, it appears that um, uh, the case in Argentina is moving forward. Can you explain who, um, you know, uh, which Burmese leaders are named in the case, if that's uh, 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 possible, and also um, what? Uh, what the procedure is and where the, the case is at the moment. When we filed the complaint, we had a discussion about, uh, about who will go into point as criminal liable for the crime of genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, and the we looked into all the information which has been produced throughout the years from the civil society side, but also from the United Nations, um, and especially taking into account the fact, the report of the fact-finding mission. Um, and what we concluded is that we had to include in our first complaint, which was this one in November 2009, the very first opportunity for a Rohingya organization to reach out to a court which, has, which is credible and independent was a very symbolic opportunity for a Rohingya organization to talk to the court about the grievances, about the crimes, and about the perpetrators. So what we decided is that we had to name all of those who we believe were responsible. And uh, we established different sections. So first, we included those who belong to the security forces, starting with the, with the commander-in-chief of the Myanmar forces, uh, General Min Online. And then we named four other members of different commanders and battalions. Those are the security forces who we believe are responsible for these crimes. Second, we included those who we believe are the civil, uh, civilians responsible for the crimes. And we included the, 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 the top authority uh, um, since 2012, 
because what we argue is that at least from 2012 and moving forward, we can argue that this crime has started to be committed. So we included pre former president Tain Sin. We included the, press, the, the current president, I don't have the name now, and inc we included Aung San Suu Kyi. And we explained in detail why Madame Aung San Suu Kyi is de facto leader, political leader and authority in Myanmar. That's why we included her as, 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 as a also la criminal liable. And then we included political leaders, especially from the, uh, uh, from the party of peace and diversity Myanmar, a, a regional party who has been um, uh, producing hate speeches, calling for Rohingya to be killed, etc., etc. We believe that they are at least accomplice for these crimes. We included religious leaders like Ashin Wiratu. We believe that they are also have to be investigated for these crimes. And finally, we included those uh, members or uh, those persons ruling companies, private businesses, who had been accomplices to these uh, genocides and crimes against humanity. So these are the, all the names uh, included in the complaint. Uh, at, at first, the Argentinian court realized that the, there was also a case at the International Criminal Court that we didn't talk about it, but maybe you, you can brief uh, your audience about it, that there is a case at the ICC, International Criminal Court, with regards also to Rohingya. Do you want to talk about that? So then yeah, I sure, can... sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I think the, uh, uh, no, I think that the prosecutor, uh, office had um, uh, requested the um, you know the judges of the ICC to see if the ICC has the jurisdiction to go after a state in this case Myanmar which is not a signatory in other words which does not accept the um, ICC statute and the um, the prosecutor's office um, a prosecutor herself, you know, made a very um, compelling legal argument for many of us. But um, although Myanmar is not a signatory to the International Court of uh, International Criminal Criminal Court ICC um, uh, statute, the Bangladesh is a signatory to the ICC, and the crime was, you know, the crime committed by non-signatory non state of Myanmar was completed on the soil of a signatory state. Yeah. So she used the, um, the analogy of an assassin firing a bullet and uh, a victim running, and then the bullet hit the victim once or um, the victim and the, the victim um, was murdered on the soil of Bangladesh. So using this clever and, and unprecedented um, legal argument, the prosecutor won over the judges of the ICC, who in turn granted her to start investigation. And, and uh, now uh, it is in a, the ICC is in a full investigation mode in so far as the crimes, uh, particularly the crime of deportation, which is a crime against humanity and uh, other crimes. But it's not limited to, she made it clear as you know, that the investigation is not limited to the crime of deportation alone. Any other crimes that preceded or that may have triggered the crime of deportation prior to the exodus of Rohingya people filing into uh, Bangladesh. So therefore, we now have the full investigation at the International Court of, uh, International Criminal Court. You know, there's also another case, the International Court of Justice, but that is not a criminal investigation. That is, uh, you know, 
interstate dispute, legal dispute between two signatory states, um, you know, party to the Convention on the Genocide, um, you know, which both Myanmar and Gambia had signed. So that's a separate issue. That, yeah. that does not, the ICJS, you know, does not try individuals. It, 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 so carry on. No, yeah, that's a very important this distinction for the ordinary people, no Legos, who are listening to you, that um, when we talk about crimes against humanity, we are talking about the responsibility of the individual, the individual who has to be accountable and who has to face the court and who has to defend themselves, herself or himself, and he could be subject to a conviction and he, has be, he, he, he could face prison, imprisonment. This is, this, is, this, is, this is what it means to speak about crimes against humanity. Interstate uh, cases are different things. So here we are talking about criminal personal responsibility. And you were explaining the case at the office of the prosecutor of the ICC very well. And precisely here is where the Argentinian court misunderstood the scope of investigation of the prosecutor of the ICC. Uh, and therefore, at the beginning, the reaction of our court here in Argentina and in our university jurisdiction case was to say, we, we, we cannot uh, start a, 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 an investigation which, which is already ongoing on the same issue. But we try to explain to them that regardless of, of the broadness of the investigation of, at the office of the prosecutor of the ICC, the reality is that those conducts, those crimes committed in the soil of Myanmar, let's say in Rakhine state, we can take whichever area, Mongdo, Butidong, we can talk, talk, talk the, about the case, the, the human rights abuses, cruel, brutal abuses in Tulatoli. Those incidents would not be anyway subject to uh, uh, the jurisdiction of the ICC. Uh, and this is what we are calling for the Argentinian court. So we filed an appeal to the decision of the Argentinian court and the chamber recognized our argument and what, what, what they decided is that our court in Argentina had to engage with the office of the prosecutor of the ICC to clear out this issue uh, and, uh, and then we will uh, move forward with the investigation. This is where we are standing and we are very confident about the response from the prosecutors of the OICC uh, office about the about uh, uh, the possibility of our case to start our case will not overlap the case at the ICC uh, on the contrary it's going to be a synergy between the two cases uh, and basically you mentioned it Sarni the fact that Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute, basically is not a state party to the International Criminal Court. That's the premise here that differentiates the case at the ICC and our universal jurisdiction case, which does not impede the Argentinian court to look into the crimes committed in the territory of Myanmar. So um, now we are um, starting to engage with the ICC. We hopefully in the near future, we will receive a response from the ICC prosecutor's office to the Argentinian court. And hopefully we will start with the investigation which opens an enormous possibilities to look into all those responsibles to look into information all over the world about the crimes uh, and it will, it's going to be 
very, very important for the Rohingya community. Right. I think that the media has been rather fixated on um, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, in most uh, Burmese stories involving Rohingya and but you know the, the the way you describe the Argentine the the case that you filed um, uh, on behalf of Rohingya victims and others uh, in Argentina is very broad and you know five categories of um, people individuals Burmese individuals officials religious leaders and um, you know the other perpetrators who uh, are reasonably believed to bear criminal responsibility. Um, can, I, can I take you back to your six years? I mean, that's a long time to investigate, um, you know, the uh, horrendous uh, violations of um, uh, rights abuses in, um, in Burma. And, and your mandate covered not just um, Rakhine or Western Myanmar State, but other places as well. You've been to Michina, I believe, uh, you know, Kachin State, you've been to Shan State, other places. And at, at some point, I think like in, in a town called Megtila, uh, a crowd, um, you know, uh, essentially uh, um, uh, threatened your life. You know, can you, can you explain uh, the, um, you know, violations that other uh, non-Rohingya communities have also suffered, perhaps not to the extent that Rohingyas have suffered, or not the kind of genocidal violations that uh, they have suffered. But nonetheless, they have also suffered crimes against humanity, war crimes, as you well know. Um, can you, exp you know, explain the other findings uh, during your six years tenure? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Thank you for that question. The, to reflect on those years would take many sessions, dear Sami. Um, it has been six years with the mandate. I, ha I, had visited, I have visited the country nine times, as I said. Uh, so I consider myself, and this is important to say, publicly. I consider myself as a witness, not only for the people, for the audience uh, of the world, but also at any jurisdictional case, I'm going to be sitting, offering my testimony, because I have a lot of information uh, about meetings with the uh, different government officials in Yangon, in Nepido, and in the provinces. I remember very well what they have said to me uh, and, uh, and the, all that information, it is very important. Um, and uh, before going into your question, let me just as a, as a, as, as a very, important note of those six years from 2008 to 2014, which I had the chance to um, experience uh, the transition towards quasi-democratic government after 40 years of military regime. Let's remember that in 2010, the military government hold, first in 2008, they hold a referendum for the new constitution. And in 2008, they hold the national elections. And I recall that they were arguing that more than 92% of the population participated and cast vote in those um, elections, which was impossible to, to, to establish and to verify. But look, I, and, when you asked me to, to, hold, to have this interview, I started to look into all my reports. Uh, so uh, as, as a mandate holder, I, report, I reported twice a year, once in the, at the Human Rights Council in Geneva and once at the General Assembly in New York. These are bodies of the United Nations. 
and I was looking into my reports. I, I needed to, to, to remember, to, to remind to myself what I have said about it. Uh, and there is a lot of information about the Rohingyas from the very first report in 2008 uh, and going, moving forward to the other reports. I always spoke about the situation in Rakhine State many times. Uh, and also about the situation in Cayenne State, where the, the, the fighting was still going on, and any areas of, of Myanmar. But in 2010, in 2010, just before the national elections, after I think more than 40 years of military rule in Myanmar, I said in my report that widespread and systematic human rights abuses were being committed has been committed, those human rights, human rights abuses entail crimes against humanity, and the United Nations should establish a commission of inquiry to basically let the, the military who were basically trying to show you know, uh, their willingness to go, to go to a democratic system that uh, some things should not be forgotten. Crimes had, that have been committed cannot be forgotten. And somehow to put a pressure and stop and to contain the military at that very important 2010 election. Unfortunately, the, 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 the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council, the bodies of the United Nations, the international community, member states of the of, of the of the of, of the United Nations could not reach you know an accord and that commission was not established. But those were real lessons learned in my view. And uh, and look you said it the ethnic minorities from eastern area of Myanmar, the Kachin, the Karen, Shan, Mon people, all of those people suffered also crimes against humanity from the from the from the army from the military every operation uh, uh, in those areas entitled crimes against humanity including sexual abuse of women ethnic minorities and that has been reported has been very very serious for the other ethnic minorities from Myanmar um, I visited uh, Cayenne um, State. I, I visited Laisa. I talked to the to the Cayenne people many many times, trying to report back to the United Nations about their sufferings, uh, and, the, and, and 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 the international community somehow decided not to take action about what has been proven. Not only. Not, on, not only by me, by me, but also by my, the previous reporters as well. And on the contrary, endorse somehow this trans, so-called transition towards democracy. Yeah. I, rem yeah. I remember one, one, one last point. I remember being in Yangon, Sami, and being told by some member of the international community that what I was doing, it was toxic for the transition. This, this represents, this expressed very well the mindset of the international community at that time. Well, if, if we uh, are to uh, disaggregate, you know, the, the, in quotes, the international community, uh, I think we are looking at, or we are um, referring, or you are referring to, um, you know, a, a different um, and influential member states and their representatives at the United Nations, uh, the um, you know senior uh, the, the diplomats, the station in Yangon, or maybe a later Naypyidaw. So these are the people that you know, many of whom uh, are very vocal about human rights, um, you know, democratic transition and peace and prosperity development. Yeah, but at the same time, in your private conversations with them, they have the gall to tell you that. You know, a UN special rapporteur, you know, the objective and coming in with a set of like, a, um, you know, a, um, principles to observe, uh, to, to, to use as yardsticks, 
uh, international law, customary law, uh, criminal law, what have you. And they were telling you that um, investigating based on your UN mandate, all these egregious crimes against humanity is toxic. So th th is, is this what you often encounter in your investigative work, um, you know, in, in within the UN system, you know? So is it that this must be one of the most uh, challenging, um, you know, things that you have to encounter? Um, do you know just to do your job? Your job is to investigate it without any favor or disfavor to any actor or victims. Don't forget that my position as a rapporteur for Myanmar is a position which was created by the United Nations. By saying this, I'm trying to explain that it is not conducive to, uh, to condemn the United Nations as a whole, basically. It's, uh, the United Nations is the best body that we, we, we have been able to attain as, as humanity uh, and is full of contradictions, definitely. And we have to accept that. And those who we believe that the United Nations should reflect on their most basic principles, which is peace, human rights, and development, um, we have to push for those uh, basic goals uh, to be respected. And, uh, and, and again, uh, there was a lot of contradictions and uh, you may know that there were some also problems with some uh, members of the UN, United Nations, residing in the country. Uh, when I visited uh, the country as a reporter, and uh, I was, some, sometimes I was put in a position trying not to be vocal about some issues. Uh, and I'm not talking about all members of the the UN um, uh, the UN people who are working on, on the ground, because I recall a lot of commitment and support from different members of the UNHCR and some other members of the United Nations who were supporting my work. But it is true that there were some others that they were trying to control somehow my mission, places that I wanted to visit, who to talk and what to say. And the result of that was a, a very important report, recent report, which is called the Rosenthal Report, which addresses what happened in Myanmar. And that, that, that report is very important, should be a, should, should be, it should be a, a report that all United Nations around the world in, 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 on the ground should follow. Uh, so that's the United Nations. Then you have member states, you know, diplomats from countries who basically def defend their interests. With their embassies in, in the country, they defend their interests. So they need to match the interests of their country to also the interests of the United Nations. And that's always very complicated or sometimes very complicated. Yeah, um, I mean, like, okay, I, I, I can understand like countries like um, China, for instance, or Singapore, you know, they are not known for uh, pro uh, promoting human rights or civil liberties or political rights of people. But um, my, my own research uh, is that um, even countries that are very vocal about Human rights, uh, you know, particularly the uh, Western democratic liberal countries, and then when their when their representatives on the ground in countries like Burma, where egregious uh, rights abuses and in international state crimes are being committed, and they also, or they, I mean, like some of them, not all, not every diplomat cannot be bad. Um, some of them attempted to, as you say, 
um, undermine your mission or control the scope of your mission or telling you that what you're doing is a toxic. I mean, you know, that is outrageous. Uh, do, do, are, are there um, Western governments that, that have been uh, representatives from Western government, ambassadors and, you know, political officers that attempted to undermine your work in Burma? In your that's, what I, that, that's, what, that's what I said. But then, that's what I said. But the question is then, why? Why? We need to try to find the reasons in addition to condemn those kind of attitudes. But we need to try to understand the, 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 the underlying reasons for those kind of, suddenly, those kind of, uh, those kind of, those kind of, kind of uh, uh, attitudes. Uh, and then try to change that. But that, that, that's something that happened, definitely. Right. Especially, especially during the, this transition, Salmi. It's, it's not only you were talking about Westerners. Um, and I have to say this, it happened with uh, people from Myanmar, living in Myanmar, uh, who had also suffered the abuses from the military system. Yes. Former uh, political prisoners that I met in prison. Um, and then... Uh, you you met with the uh, um, you know some of the most prominent leaders of um, you know 1988 generation group. Yeah. Um, you also met with um, um, Aung San Suu Kyi, I believe. And what um, were they supportive of your mission, or were they rather uh, lukewarm, or even like outrightly, uh, you know, or, ob uh, objectionistic or obstructionist? Uh, towards what you what you're doing because the as majoritarian ethnic dissidents or former dissidents their goal is to 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 push for democratic opening even if the minorities continue to suffer when that democratic space was opening for them as members of dominant ethnic group is that the case um, with your experience with uh, you know interacting with people like Aung San Suu Kyi yeah, exactly. or Kokoji, Minko Nine. Exactly. Let me, let me speak through my experience. I don't want to make uh, adjectivation about what they did or how they act. So um, I, I, I would say that I never felt uh, obstruction. Obstruction. I, I should, I, I have to, I have to say it. Uh, obstruction from uh, these uh, sectors of the uh, Myanmar uh, uh, civil society or political movement. Um, but I have to say two things about it. First, this one. I met many of them, for example, Koko Shi and some others, in prison as political prisoners. Uh, and then I had the possibility to meet, to, to meet them uh, in freedom. And I started also to meet Aung San Suu Kyi after she was released from uh, house arrest. Uh, and what, uh, what, what I can say about, about those meetings is two things. First, that, um, my view, my humble view as an observer, human rights observer at that precisely, precise historical uh, time in Myanmar was that the civilian movement, the former 88 political uh, movement, 88 generation political movement and the NLD and all those who were following Aung San Suu Kyi, I, I, my view at that time, and this is what I share with them, and this was my recommendations to them, is that they should, they, they should have taken a, a grip of the, or, 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 of, their, or, of the power at that moment against the military regime who has been in power for many, many decades, instead of trying to reach an agreement with the military towards a transition toward democracy, uh, to democracy. Uh, and I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't uh, build a, a dialogue on that. Uh, uh, 
Uh, I made several times points about the need, for example, to establish the truth, to establish uh, truth commissions, you know, to point to the military abuses. Uh, and that will give them, the ATA generation, the NLD, enough strength to, on their own, carry out, or at least a, a little bit more strength to carry out the transition towards democracy, towards democracy, instead of leaving all the power to the military, because that was going to be a risk. Those were my wars at that time. And I couldn't receive you know, a, a clear uh, understanding about it. The, the, there was no decision made about it. On the contrary, there was a decision to endorse the terms of the transition to democracy of the military regime. Exactly the same terms, not touching any of those terms of the military. And that was a mistake because then the military will continue to enjoy the kind of power that they still enjoy. That's one thing. Second thing has to do with Rohingyas. When I talked to them about the ethnic minorities from Eastern Myanmar, they were supportive. They were supportive of ceasefire agreements. They were supportive of discussing, discussing what kind of government, whether it is federal or not. You know, open a dialogue with ethnic minorities, Kachin, Karen, and others. But when I raise what I have been seeing in Rakhine State, because I usually meet them after going to Rakhine State, coming with a very fresh information about the suffering of the Rohingyas, they will, they would remain either on silence completely, not saying anything or basically saying that I was completely wrong about what I was saying, that I was biased. And that really shocked me because I, I did not expect uh, those kind of reactions. Towards the end of uh, uh, your mandate in um, uh, 2014, um, you begin to um, float the word that uh, the nature of the crime goes beyond violation of individual rights, harms done to the in human individuals, and it, it carry the genocidal nature, targeting intentionally the destruction of Rohingya as a community. Can you explain, um, you know, the the shift in your uh, conclusion or findings or perspective? Um, yeah. To be accurate, uh, well, as I said, in all of my report, or most of my reports, I refer to the situation of Rohingya many times, many times. Um, but when the violence erupted in Rakhine State in 2012, I started to see uh, with more, um, more clearly about um, what was the aim of the government at that time. We are talking about a quasi-civilian government. Tainzin was the president. It was two years after the general elections. So uh, it was very interesting to analyze that um, the military, the military authority, the, the military structure, the system, those, those who belong to the military, were not pointed at first as you know, the primary force driven all these uh, abuses uh, in Rakhine State. Um, so what happened in 2012 was that uh, the brutality started to show, to, show, uh, to, to, show, to show it in Rakhine State, you know, with the, with the people being killed, Rohingyas being killed in large numbers, Rohingyas being held in in booted down prison and other prisons, more than one thousand 
being subject to torture and dying in prisons. Uh, we started to see the use of uh, ab sexual abuse, rape against Rohingya uh, women by the security forces. Uh, that was, for me, that was all new. Before that, we have a destruct, the, we, we, we have the whole state structure operating against the Rohingya by restricting the right to movement, by restricting marriages, by restricting uh, the, the birth certificates, by uh, restricting um, uh, nationality, basically, um, by also uh, um, putting the Rohingyas constantly in the fear of being attacked. So that was the scenario before 2012. And in 2012, the violence started to be implemented against the Rohingya with real brutal practices. And through 2012 and 2014, that continued, definitely continued. And in 2014, there was an incident, an incident that now looking back, we understand what was going to be, what the kind of clearance operations were happened, which happened in 2016 and 2017, which was the incident in Duchartan, was a village in Rakhine State where the villagers, it was argued that kidnapped a police officer. It was the very first time that the Myanmar authorities had an argument with no excuses, of course, but an argument to attack, attack the village. Before that, not even in 2012, there was no excuse when the government was responding to me about my, my, uh, my concerns about the violence. The response was, they were not arguing about, you know, uh, or, or mil militias or any violence directly from the Rohingyas. In this case, it was, was, was the argument. They kidnapped a of police officer. So they massacred that village. It was a massacre in that village, right? It was in January 2014. And it was very difficult to access to information. Uh, there were very few reports about that. I recall having a very agitated conversation with the chief of police in Rakhine State, denouncing what happened. And th that was very important discussion. But, uh, and that all that, to refine it, to respond to your question, that at some point made me realize that something else was going on in Rakhine State in addition to the usual violence. Mm -hmm. I was not in a position to use the word genocide in my last report of 2014. But if you go to that report, and I, I encourage you to go to that report of 2000, March 2014, what I, what I, I was looking to that Sunny and was interesting because what I, what I, um, what I describe basically as what was happening in Rakhine State against Rohingya is the description of a genocide case. So all, all, all the elements are there. It's the objective elements, which is the destruction, in fact, of the people, but also the intention, which is the key question here, the intention to, uh, to, to destroy to total or partial the community. So, uh, so I encourage you to look into that report. Then when you call me, and you put me in a position to say that was in April 2014 to say what I believe was happening. I definitely uh, use the word genocide. I said to be accurate. I said that there were elements of genocide taking place in Rakhine State against Rohingya. Um, now um, we are coming to the one-hour mark. And so my uh, final question is, um, uh, you know, uh, for you as someone who also grew up on the Argentinian military rule, Argentine, Argentina, your own country, also suffer, um, you know, the uh, military dictatorship, right? And, um, and 
in your six years of tenure, um, you know, investigating crimes against humanity and other crimes in my own country of, of Myanmar, you also came into contact with, um, you know, the uh, military personnel, you know, uh, maybe home affairs, uh, military intelligence, the defense ministry officials. How would you characterize the capacity of Burmese military to reflect on its own performance and, um, you know, right the past wrong, you know, um, because I don't know much about Argentina, so, but I, I assume that um, based on the uh, successful transition from military dictatorship in Argentina to a democratic system, you must be in a position to share some thoughts because uh, you were advising Aung San Suu Kyi, NLD and other um, NLD dissidents and uh, ADA generation leaders that look, you don't comply or placate the military. You have to challenge the terms of the, the deal that they're giving you and then so to build um you know truth and reconciliation committee um you know push for different or revised terms of engagement with the military and obviously our own lord failed to heed your um essentially strategic advice coming from someone who didn't come from new york but who came from Buenos Aires, yeah who lived under the dictatorship how do you assess the burmese military and 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 the you know the prospect for reform and democratization under this situation mm. when I, I i told you about uh, the call for a commission of inquiry in 2010 and i re recall meeting the Myanmar ambassador in geneva the military ambassador you know the go military government the ambassador and i was already regularly visiting the country and when I met him with that report, he said to me, we urge you to take out that recommendation from your report, because otherwise our cooperation with your mandate will be undermined, which means that I was going to be stopped to visit the country anymore. And I, that was very interesting reaction and i somehow anticipated that uh, it was very interesting because it showed that the military government was going to feel really uncomfortable if that space for revision of the past or you know transitional justice whatever form it takes was going to hurt them their intentions to continue to hold power. Uh, that was very revealing for me. And I anticipated that they, they were going to kind of try to stop me to go to the country. But I said to him, I understand your position, but I hope that the newly elected government, if they want recognition from the United Nations, they will have to accept me again to the country. And that's what happened. So I, I, I stopped going to the country for one year and then I started to go again. Um, in my conversations with Aung San Suu Kyi about the need to address the path, the past, and we were discussing different formulas, she said to me, I do not believe in courts. I, I, I don't think courts are the, are the answer. Courts for crimes committed by the military. But she said, well, I insisted that it could be truth commission, truth and reconciliation commission, some space that will give you, you know, the possibility to bring all the testimonies and all the facts and all what happened throughout 50, 40 years of military regime, even people who were killed in 2003, in, in, in that uh, 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 people from your party who were killed by the military in 2003, I, remember, I forgot the name of that incident. Um, and she said, but I believe that maybe it's, uh, uh, the need to reflect on, on the suffering is important. She said, I have been a political prisoner 
I had the chance to heal my pain by communicating with the people, by communicating with the international community. But thousands of political prisoners do not have that possibility and to give them the possibility to heal the pain, it is important. That was just the kind of conversation that I have with these kind of leaders, but no more than that. So I was really frustrated because I, I hope that something else was going to, 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 to take place. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I cannot suddenly now uh, assess, uh, you know, recommendations or, or give you recommendations to you or to others about what to do. Definitely the problem in Myanmar is the strength of the, of the military, which is all over. And uh, so all strategies has to have to go to that direction, how to, how, how to cut those um, strengths that the military has that in a democracy that they should not have, have they should not have. That's the way forward for Myanmar, I think. Well, um, Special Rapporteur Thomas O'Hara Quintana, it's been a great pleasure and an honor um, to hear your thoughts. And, um, you know, I personally uh, uh, will remain uh, indebted to you uh, for the six years of enormous uh, contribution. Um, at times, uh, you know, uh, the, essentially risking your own safety. Um, in my own country. And thank you very much. And uh, I wish you all the best with your work on another difficult regime, North Korea. That's it. Yeah. Thank you, Sarni. And thank you for, uh, for this opportunity.